From the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's the Broad Ignite podcast. Each month, we feature a researcher supported by this program, which connects rising philanthropists with emerging scientific talent. Learn more at giving.broadinstitute.org slash broadignite. Broadignite, seeding the next generation of biomedical visionaries. I think one of the big advantages of looking at dogs and wolves and trying to understand social behavior and how you actually make a wolf into a dog is that it's something that people haven't ever looked at before, and they certainly haven't really tried to look at it in the context of understanding something like a a developmental disorder like autism. I'm Jenny Rood, your host for this episode. Autism spectrum disorders affect 1 in 68 kids in the U.S., but we still don't have a grasp of the basic biology of these conditions. That's partly due to a lack of useful scientific tools. For example, mouse models, which are commonly used to study other human diseases, aren't all that helpful because mice behave quite differently from people. You might wonder, are there other animals we could use instead? Today, we're speaking with Brodignite awardee Eleanor Carlson, an expert in dog genetics, who's plumbing the depths of the hybrid genomes of wolf dogs for clues into social behavior. Welcome to the podcast, Eleanor. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Working in dog genetics sounds like a lot of fun. Tell me how you got there. Well, I actually got really interested in genetics a long time ago in high school when I was taking freshman biology and we did the the little Punnett square thing where you're looking at pea plants, Mendel's pea plants. And I was really just completely fascinated by the idea that you could look at genes and by looking at the genes, actually make a prediction about what the the organism was going to look like. Um, so that was way back in high school. But then I kind of went off on on various tangents. I went to college at Rice University in Houston, Texas, and actually studied both fine arts and biochemistry because I liked both science and art and couldn't make up my mind. And four years later, I graduated and still hadn't made up my mind and actually ended up going to New Zealand for a few years uh, where I worked as a database programmer. And that was kind of the first time I was really working in computers. And I enjoyed working with computers, but I discovered while I was in New Zealand that while I liked working with computers, I really missed the science. And that was when I decided that I was going to come back and actually work in genetics, which was very strange to me because I was like, I feel like I've just come full circle. So uh, what did you study when you came back? So I came back and and I got a job as a data analyst at uh, what was the precursor to the Broad Institute. Um, And at that point in time, we were working on the Mouse Genome Project. Uh, And a genome project is basically where you look at the DNA of a single animal and kind of look at all of its DNA and figure out what it looks like. And so if you sequence the genome of a mouse, you kind of get a reference map for the mouse. And so I started working on that. And then after about a year and a half, I decided that I was going to go back to grad school and do my PhD. I was really enjoying being back in science and doing research, and that was kind of the next step. Um, So I started my PhD in bioinformatics at Boston University, and at about the same time, um, the person I'd been working with on the Mouse Genome Project, Shashtin Lynn Bladteau, started talking to me about dogs and the dog genome project that they were working on and how interesting dogs would be to actually look at uh, the genetics of traits, so actually looking at genes to predict what what the dog was going to look like. And, you know, it just sounded like such a fun project to be doing for my PhD. I just immediately got on board. So what aspects of genetics in dogs did you look at in your PhD? So the first one we looked at was actually coat color, so white coat color. Um, We started with that partly because it was easy. When you do science, you usually try to start with the things that are easier, and if you can actually do those, then you move on to the harder things. And coat color was easy because... 
Well, easier, I should say. It wasn't easy. It was easier. It's never easy the first time. Um, but you can actually look at the dogs and figure out what their coat color looks like. It's not any more complicated than that. And coat color, um, the coat co- type of coat color we were looking at, which was white coat color in the boxer breed, is actually controlled by changes in a single gene. And so it was actually very much like the kind of pea plants that I've been doing in high school. You could actually look at that gene and figure out what the dog was going to look like. We took 10 white dogs and we took 10 dogs that were, were solid colored, so mostly brown, and we compared their DNA. We looked across their entire genome, we compared them and found the place where the white dogs looked different from the solid dogs and figured out that that was probably the gene that was responsible for that white coat color. And what did you decide to study after you solved the coat color problem? Well, you know, the reason that we were actually interested in looking at dogs is that even though looking at coat color was very, very interesting, um, one of the most remarkable things about dogs are actually that they get a lot of the same diseases that people get. So they get cancer, they get, they have epilepsy, they have diabetes. And because of the history of dogs and the way we've bred certain breeds um, to look a certain way, some of those breeds also have uh, particular diseases that are quite common. So, you know, there's several breeds uh, like the greyhounds that quite commonly get bone cancer. And the fact that one breed is getting that disease more often than other dogs suggests that genetics are responsible. And so what we actually wanted to do is see whether we could use dogs to find genes that are involved in diseases that people share with dogs as a way to kind of understand those diseases better. But this was much harder than looking at coat color. So with coat color, we had one gene. Cancer is not caused by a change in a single gene. There's a lot of different genes that were contributing to it. And so in order to study something like cancer, um, we had to look at many more dogs and we had to look at for coat color. Was it a challenge to get enough dogs for your study? You know, at that point in time, it was one of the really difficult things with the dog work was that on the one hand, there were dogs everywhere. I mean, you go outside, you see dogs. And so you wouldn't think that it would be any problem getting dog, getting samples, getting dogs to enroll in your study. But at the same time, that was never easy. We were having a lot of trouble even getting, you know, 100 or 200 dogs for our cancer studies or um, for our behavior studies. And we were pretty sure that we would actually need, you know, more like 1,000 dogs rather than 100 dogs. And so this was kind of this ongoing challenge is how could we actually get more dogs actually engaged in our research. So how did you solve this problem of not having enough dogs to study? So in addition to studying cancer in dogs, we'd also started studying compulsive disorder. Um, And there's something called canine compulsive disorder, which when you look at it is incredibly similar to OCD in humans, obsessive compulsive disorder. And we'd done a lot of work on this disease in dogs. And there were two things that were kind of coming out of it. One was that we didn't have enough dogs to actually figure out what was going on. But the second thing was is that the few hints that we were getting from the genetics that we had done was showing us that not only did the disease look the same in people and in dogs, but that the same pathways in the brain seemed to be involved. And this was really exciting to us because that meant that we could actually study compulsive disorder in dogs and get insight into what actually might be going on, not just in the dog's brains, but also in the brains of people that have this disease, which is kind of the first step in in it in finding new therapies. And so what we needed to do was figure out a way that we could study compulsive disorder and other behavioral problems in dogs But that meant that we needed to get a lot of dogs. And that was why we started this project that we call Darwin's Dogs. And so what Darwin's Dogs is, it's a website. Anybody can go to it and sign up their dog. Any dog can sign up. But basically what we ask people to do is to tell us about their dogs. We want to know about your dog's you know, how old they are. We want to know about their behavior. We want to know about weird, quirky things that they do. We ask about the things that they eat. We just ask a lot of questions about your dog. So we set up this project about two years ago. You know, I was really hoping that we might get 
a thousand dogs to sign up. And it, it took off much faster than that. And, and it was really exciting. And actually, at this point in time, I think we have over 13,000 dog owners signed up. And they've actually answered over 1.4 million questions for us. Were you surprised that people were willing to answer hundreds and thousands of questions about their dogs? I was really excited. And at first, I was pretty surprised. And then, of course, once I started thinking about it and thinking about about the dogs that I know, I realized that probably I shouldn't have been surprised as I was. So my sister actually has two dogs, uh, Besco and Kaylee. One of the reasons that I started thinking about going directly to the dog owners to begin with was because Besco actually has pretty serious anxiety. And my sister, Audrey, has been trying to figure out how to handle Besco uh, for, for years now. And Besco's doing doing great now, but it's been a, it's been a long road. And what I realized was that she knew about Besco. She knew that Besco was anxious and she knew situations where Besco was anxious. And this really kind of summarized why dogs are such a wonderful species to study is because people really do know about their dogs. And the real key is to figure out how to ask them. In addition to Darwin's dogs, you've now embarked on a completely new and different study of wolf dogs, thanks to Red Ignite. What is a wolf dog, and what can they tell us that domestic dogs can't? So a wolf dog is a mix between a dog and a wolf, and it turns out that they're not necessarily half dog, half wolf, but there's actually animals out there that are a little bit of wolf and a lot of dog, and animals out there that are you know, a little bit of dog and a lot of wolf. And this is a really exciting project for me, and it's not something I was expecting to be doing a year ago. It's, it's kind of a brand new project, and it's with the support of Broding Night, we've actually been able to get it started so quickly. So where this project came from is that a friend of mine who's in the animal behavior world introduced me to a person called Catherine Lord, who's now actually part of our group. And Catherine has never done genetics before, but she had spent 10 or 15 years studying dog and wolf behavior. And so we kind of sat down together and all of a sudden I was finding out all of these things about the differences between dogs and wolves that I'd never really understood before. You know, I'm a geneticist. I could read, you know, books and things about this, but I'd never really worked with the dogs and the wolves. And so when she was talking about how a wolf, you know, what the difference is between a wolf and a dog, it turns out that there were all of these differences. Um, so it was things like uh, dogs are very, very good at reading body language. They're very good at social cues. Um, they make a lot more eye contact. They're less sensitive to novelty in their environment. And as she started talking about these differences, I, I was kind of thinking back to the other places that I've heard about things like, you know, you know, your ability to read social cues and things like that. And I realized that maybe by understanding how a wolf becomes a dog, we might actually learn something about diseases that have to do with social um, behavior. So, so things like autism, where people have more difficulty socializing. So what is your hope for how studying wolf dogs might allow you to apply this to people and understanding these difficult social behavior disorders that we've had trouble getting a grasp on? So I, I think one of the big advantages of looking at dogs and wolves and trying to understand social behavior and how you actually 
make a wolf into a dog um, is that it's something that people haven't ever looked at before. And they certainly haven't really tried to look at it in the context of understanding something like a, a developmental disorder like autism. And so we have an opportunity to discover things that you would never find using um, systems that people often use in research, which is either by looking at people themselves or looking at laboratory animals like mice. The other really interesting thing about autism is that in people, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that it shows up really, really early in infancy, um, so within the first year of life. And that's a very hard time to actually study in people because often you don't know that people are affected until they're older than that. So you kind of miss that, that first year. And because we know that a wolf is going to be a wolf and a dog is going to be a dog, we can now look very, very closely at the very, very first stages of life. And so in wolves and dogs, it tends to be the first 10 weeks that we're really interested in. And we can actually study them in detail because we know how these animals are going to behave as adults. So after a long day at the office analyzing dog genetics, do you return home to your own canines? So this is kind of my uh, my dirty secret being a dog geneticist is that um, so when I got into this, I didn't know anything about dogs and I've never actually owned a dog. Wow. I know. It's been a it's been a big learning experience for me. I think I spent the first year of my PhD just looking at the encyclopedia of dog breeds, trying to understand what all of these different things <laughs> were. Um, so I actually do not have a dog. Uh, and even worse than that, possibly, I've got three cats. Uh, I'm actually kind of a, a cat person. Um, their names are Darwin, Mendel, and Lacey. Lacey's actually named after Ada Lovelace, who is the first person to come up with computer algorithms. Cool. So do you have plans to study cat genetics? This is something I would love to do in the future. I think there's some really, really interesting things we could study in cats. And one of the first things would just be behavior. I think in dogs, they all have to be domesticated because it would be dangerous for us to live with a wolf. And in cats, we might see a lot more variation in how social a cat is. And actually, by studying house cats, we might actually be able to understand something about social behavior that we don't see in people and we can't see in dogs. Great. So might there be a future project similar to Darwin's dogs for well, cats? Well, well, this is the reason why we actually really need to do this project is that we've already come up with a really cool name for it. And so now we kind of have to do it. Uh, we've decided that if we do, when we do a cat project, we're going to call it Double Feet. Felix. Awesome. So cat owners who are listening, make sure to keep your eyes peeled for the sign up for Double Felix and you can tell us all about your cat's behavior and send in a DNA swab. Eleanor, thank you so much for stopping by and telling us about Darwin's dogs and your wolf dog, Bird Ignite Project. Thank you for having me. This has been the Bird Ignite Podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode, when we'll hear how Brode Ignite is helping create a breakthrough technology to unlock the brain's secrets by identifying all the different molecules present in a single cell. The Brode Ignite podcast is produced by Bradford Krieger of Big Nice Studio. Special thanks to Scott Sassone from the Brode's communications department. And of course, a huge thank you to our amazing community of Brode Ignite supporters. Learn more at giving.brodeinstitute.org slash Brode